Welcome to Screen Cleaning here on BYU Radio. This is Jeff Simpson. And this is Cole Wissinger. And we are here each and every week to give you the very best in entertainment. We shine a spotlight on all that is good in the entertainment industry. We don't like to focus on the negative aspects. We don't like to focus on the gossip. And uh, today, we're taking a look back at not a particular year, uh, because we actually don't like talking about the year previous to the one we're currently in. The most recent one. Right. But we're okay talking about the previous decade, the decade of the 2010s. Yeah, as the calendar pages kind of turn, we've had a year now to buffer us between the time of the 2010s that we think that we can speak to it with some retrospection, some perspective that we've gained, and to see what the true trends were, what the storylines that made up the 2010 decade really was. And then Hopefully in the future, Screen Cleaning continues on as a podcast as we have for the past hundred or so episodes. We're going to cover the other decades, the 2000s, the 90s, 80s, 70s, 60s. You got anything to say about the movies of the 40s, Jeff? I, Are we going to get there? I may. I may surprise you. What What could surprise me, Cole, though, is I can't wait until the end of the show when we – Talk about what your favorite movie of the 2010s is. But we're going to leave you in suspense. I know what that's your the, that's I, the last. I know what thing. your favorite movie of the 2000s is, but not the 2010s. Mm. You, on the other hand, guessed mine immediately. I was very impressed. I did give you a pretty big clue, though. Yeah. We do want to thank right off the bat our assistant producer Avery Otzbach, who is here with us today and has put forth quite a bit of research into today's episode. Howdy, Avery. Hello, guys. Nice to be here. Avery, tell us what we're going to be talking about first. Well, first of all, well, in doing my research, there was a, you know, I think I, we determined a couple of major trends that really defined um, the cinema of the 2010s. And the first one, I think we can all agree, maybe even the biggest one, was that the 2010s was a decade for franchises. Oh, and, yeah. And oh, maybe yeah. one franchise. Say what? it, Say it, Avery. Say its name. <laughs> one franchise in particular, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Thank you very MCU. much. Avery, Avery uh, is our new assistant producer. For those who don't know him, and you'll get to know him over the episodes of Screen Cleaning, he's uh, he's uh, he's very knowledgeable about cinema. He's been amazing. Um, and he's a little bit of a snob. And uh, <laughs> he uh, doesn't love the MCU new movies. Cole, I-, I thought you were like Robert Pattinson there for a second, you know, kind of bullying Bella into saying that he's a vampire. <laughs> Say it. Say MCU. Say my name. No, I totally agree, though, because when I think of the the trends in movies right now, yeah, it is these big blockbuster movies, these tentpole movies, these franchises, really just Marvel Cinematic Universe movies that, unfortunately, because of COVID, we haven't really had much access to unless you head over to Disney+. Plus. Right? Gosh, I love when things are really clean. Okay, I, I'm also a sports fan. And, and by the way, this weekend is the Super Bowl between the Chiefs and the Buccaneers, I will be watching and rooting for the <laughs> everyone to have a good time. Didn't I try to guess which two teams were playing recently? You struggled a little bit. And I, I struggled to like string together a couple of actual football team <laughs> names. Jeff's more of a baseball fan, and his Dodger fandom uh, went up a little bit with recent news also. Yeah. You, you saw about Trevor Bauer mm. sign, signed with the Dodgers? That is wonderful. Yeah, he's making more money than the entire Pittsburgh Pirates 
like lineup, <laughs> their entire payroll doesn't equal what he's going to make this See, year. See, I, I love these connections that you and I sh- share, Cole. So your loss is my gain, it sounds like. Yeah. Well, okay. So anyway, I'm a sports <laughs> fan, and I love when things are really clean. And I remember the 1990s specifically as the decade that started with the Buffalo Bills going to four straight Super Bowls. And I wouldn't remember that as much if it had been like 1988, 89, 90, and 91, right? It was so cool that the universe allowed it to happen, that the Bills genuinely went in 90, 91, 92, 93. And so the MCU did this for me too. It ended. It's end game, right? It's the end of the Infinity Saga. It's first big phase. Ended after It had a true culmination in the year 2019. And then because of circumstance... We even got a full year of buffer zone in 2020 with nothing before we start launching into the next great saga that the MCU will take us on. Its first phase truly took us the entire decade, and it was the story of the decade. You know, Cole, if if I had my choice about this, I would much prefer their fourth phase to just roll out on Disney Plus because I am loving WandaVision, the few episodes that I've seen so far. The problem for me with these Marvel Cinematic Universe movies is that they really tend to blend together. I can appreciate, Cole. I can appreciate the fact that, like you said, they had an end game. They had all of these planned in advance and they weren't just flying by the seat of their pants. Like, like other franchises it, that, that have tried to copy named. them yeah, yeah, have yeah, ended yeah. up – yeah, yeah. Right. Um But yeah, what I've enjoyed about these Disney Plus shows that are starting to creep up in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that they offer me something a little different. And I can enjoy them from the comfort of my own home. But my hat is definitely off to the MCU and those behind the MCU, Kevin Feige, Feige, however you say it, because it, it takes so much effort and foresight and sticking to your guns to crank out 21 films that so fluidly fit into one another that uh, you can't help but admire it and watch in awe. And and yeah, sure, it technically started in 2008 with Iron Man and technically the Ed Norton Incredible Hulk also in 2008 is part of the MCU even the one though blip, the one blip maybe that Mark um, Ruffalo took okay, over. Okay. Yeah, yeah, not the best, not the best. But in 2011 we got Captain America, the first Avenger. Which I enjoy. Which is what it's called. That really starts our Avengers journey because then it's Thor and then the very next year it's Avengers and you think, man, movies can't get better than this. Like things can't come together in a bigger way than this. And then every year it did. Yeah. And I, I actually am a bigger fan of those first movies in trilogies, you know, of that character's arc. So I loved Iron Man. I really liked Captain Avenger the fir- or Captain America the First Avenger. I Thor not I so loved much. Thor. You seem to <laughs> lean towards the third iteration of that. But Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, and that one in particular, I feel like could have existed outside of the MCU, and I would have just been totally fine with that because I felt like that was the first experience that I had in watching any of these MCU films where I felt like I was watching something just as fresh as Star Wars was when that movie came out. It was almost like I was seeing Star Wars on the big screen. Like I was there with that group that was lining up outside to see it. You know? I make fun of Jeff for being the generation above me, but both of us are too young to have actually seen 1977's right. The First Star Wars in cinema. Right, right. 
Um, I wonder, though, do you feel like Iron Man or any one of these films in the MCU should get credit for jump-starting this superhero cinematic universe? Do you feel like there are any other superheroes outside of the MCU that deserve a little credit that don't often get mentioned? So, well, we kind of alluded to other franchises trying to do what the MCU does and failing, right? Sure, you you would have probably preferred Guardians of the Galaxy to stand alone, and you like Ant-Man, I know, because it feels like it's a different kind of a story and right. it could stand alone. Yeah. But what the MCU does that no one else has figured out how to do is to actually tie everything together because the DCEU, with all of their heroes, immediately tried to copy. Filmmaking in, and most business is a copycat league. It's a copycat business. And so as soon as the MCU was making money, DC tried to tie all of their films together and make an extended universe, and sure. it didn't work out so well. The The Universal Monsters tried spectacularly to set up a hundred different films in their first one, and then they forgot to make a good first movie, and then it <laughs> fell apart before it could even get started. For every Gucci bag, there's like a Fucci bag that's Couple just knockoffs. not as good as the original, right? Yeah, and so... Not only is the MCU the story of movies in the decade, but it really does capture what a lot of other big budget movies were trying to do in this decade, and that's bring things together. Mission Impossible, the first three mm-hmm. movies were very, very distinct. Each filmmaker was kind of taking their different look at it. J.J. Right. Abrams, right, didn't really care what was going on in the other ones when he, he has a particular vision for number three and then Brad Bird and four. But the movies we've gotten in this decade have been the Tom Cruise, Christopher McQuarrie written ones, and they've kind of tried to bring things from old movies back because there's nothing more that we've loved in this decade than to point at the screen and say, hey, I remember that. I remember yeah. That was in another movie. They're and, connected. And that aside, the fact that they were were able to connect these movies together so well, and I mean, that's that's the trait of a, of a great producer, of filmmakers, that even if they're different, they're all on the same page and all in. Aside from all that, I mean, we're talking some of the biggest money-making movies of all time. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Okay. So can I – this This is going to – this will also be a good segue into our next big theme. But of the 100 movies that were in the top 10 each year, box office earners internationally, right? So there's, there's 10 movies every single year. A decade's got 10 years. So there's 100 movies. How many do you think were not tied to a franchise? Oh, gosh. The percentage will be really easy, right? If it's like 13, it'll be 13% because it's out of 100. Yeah. I mean, that just seems to be the way of things these days. Pick, pick right? a number. Pick a number 1 to 100. Oh, of how many were not connected not to? Not connected to a bigger franchise. Okay. Either they would spawn sequels or they were sequels themselves. They were reboots maybe. I'm buying time for you. Avery, do you want to throw a number out 13 there? 13 were not connected. Five. You want to take the under on I'm 13? I'm cynical, yeah. The the answer is eight, and oh. even these were Split sort the of in franchises themselves. So Inception was in the top ten in 2010. Love it. It's a Nolan movie. Nolan's his own franchise. Tangled, it's a Disney movie. People go see Disney Really? Movies. It made that much, huh? Gravity and Interstellar, both big space movies, yeah. and Interstellar was another Nolan one. Yeah. Inside Out, Disney. Zootopia, Disney. The Martian, big space movie. Those are the and only also ones. now Disney, right? <laughs> those are the only eight movies that were in their top ten that year that were not tied to a bigger 
franchise. Franchises were the story of the 2010s. But if we're going to talk about franchises and the big budget ones, we should give some time to the other side. Little stuff. Yeah. I don't know about you guys, but I might be suffering from some franchise fatigue right now. I'm ready to dial it back and talk about another one of the big stories of the 20, well, trends, I should say, of the 2010s, which was the little guys, independent cinema. And I think we'll also take a look at one little cinema, one little studio, excuse me, in particular, A24. You know, I I just think Avery doesn't want to talk about MCU anymore. That's the feeling <laughs> I'm getting. I, I got 11 minutes out of that conversation. I'm happy. He didn't even fall asleep. A24, I'm pretty sure that's like a bingo or a lottery number, right? No, the A's are like, it's one through, is it one through 25? Is A24? Oh, no, because it's B, B, one through 25. Actually, I-N-G-O. A would not even be in bingo. Yeah, all right, all right, all right. Yeah. Anyway, That's my A24. lottery number then, yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, it's, it kind of championed the independent cinema. Every studio kind of has their Fox Searchlight or their Miramax or whatever it is. But but A24 kind of came up and and dominated the classy form of cinema that we saw in the 2010s. It is interesting, though, because I feel like there's this big tug of war uh, going on in Hollywood where, you know, if you are doing this big tentpole blockbuster movie, you're not going to be taken seriously. But then – that's clearly the movie that people want to go see. And so then you have people all up in arms about, well, how come Avengers Endgame isn't being nominated for Best Picture, right? So you're starting to see more of these popular movies back in the award circuit. Like Black Panther was nominated for a ton of Academy Awards. And now I feel like it's starting to – the pendulum is starting to go back the other way, partially due to the circumstances where – these big money-making movies are not being released because they don't want to lose all the money they spent. And so we're getting a lot of these independent movies, more so that are coming out. But I still feel like it's going to be really difficult for these big blockbuster movies to be taken seriously as award contenders. So I think these low-budget movies that aren't necessarily feel feel-good movies are going to be the ones that continue to win awards and that continue to at least get the attention of critics and auteurs. Um, but A24, I will say, has some really good movies under their belt, right? Yeah, they they became the vanguard of it. I think this this difference that you're talking about, this new Oscar awardsy model, is a story of a different decade, right? It was it was the 90s and the 2000s Maybe that a really, little. especially. Well, we're going to have shows about the 90s, and one of the trends that I'm going to bring up is how the 90s ruined the Oscars because it started just being the Oscar strategy, right? Sure. A24, though, is kind of the return of the middle-budget movie because as as we started seeing what is successful at the box office and what can actually make you money in the movie-making business, we realized that the the absolutely massive-budget movies – return their investment well, and absolute micro-budget movies were returning their investment as well. And so A24 kind of stood alone saying that we can still make awardsy stuff with highly paid actors and and decent scripts and just kind of a a middle budget to go on that can be respected and that we can make our own kind of movies. They, They stood there and they championed that section of movies. Let me ask you a question, though. What, to you constitutes a good movie is it a movie that makes you think is it a movie that has 
rewatchability factor going on? Is it a movie that you just can't get out of your head? How I mean, is it possible for you, Cole, to describe what a good movie is in such simple terms? That is such a bigger conversation than I know, just the decade the, that we're having. The, the but... reason – it's kind of a leading question because – I take a look at some of these movies produced by A24. Room is one, for instance, that I've seen. And, you know, sure, it was a powerful movie. The acting was good. Um, How likely am I to ever watch that movie again? I have. You have rewatched it several times. So it, it I know it's a thinking is, film. This is not a, a conversation that we want to have right here, but like with any art that you might consume. Is a good piece of art one that you would consume more than once? Like would you walk by a painting and say that's the greatest painting I've ever seen but I never want to see it again, right? Well, how, how many times have you watched Schindler's List maybe is, is a one. good example of that one I've where seen it's it one. so heavy and it's so well made and it makes you think and it does everything a good movie should do except make you want to watch it again. I don't think that is at all a knock. Uh, like a movie doesn't have to be rewatchable. To but be I think at least some of these independent films, like, let's take Schindler's List, for instance, or another one. I don't know if it's A24, but Eighth Grade is a movie that you had told me about. And there are types of movies that I feel like are more than just art where they, they kind of transcend that and they become these educational pieces that are very important. Like I think about Schindler's List. I think about Eighth Grade. And I can think of scenarios in which I would probably – Show those to my kids or to other people so that we could open up a conversation about this really happened, you know, in talking about Schindler's List and eighth grade, like those types of conversations that those awkward, really cringeworthy conversations that that eighth grade girl is having. Those really happen, you know, and and here's what you do to arm yourself so that those types of things don't happen to you. And right? we can be educated about stories that aren't our own experience, right? Yeah. Lower budgets means you can explore different creators making different stories. So Moonlight, The Florida Project, Lady Bird, a, a great mother-daughter story. I am neither a mother nor a daughter, and I still liked it. And it it didn't connect to me, but I'm so glad that it exists so that it can connect for someone else because uh, under the big studio system, those movies just weren't getting made for such a long period of time. So we did we did branch out a little bit to different stories in the 2010s, and the smaller studios allowed that to exist. But a lot of these films, as we've talked about, they've won lots of awards, and particularly the actors in these films – are they go on to win Oscars? Brie Larson won for the movie Room, and uh, Moonlight won Best Picture. Right? So wait, La La Land didn't win Best Picture? Oh no, those were different years. La La Land definitely did win because both uh, Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty yeah, said that it did. I, I remember distinctly. So La La Land, if it's won on TV, you gotta believe it, right? Oh, that was another theme of the 2010s. Don't believe anything on TV or the internet. <laughs> Well, Cole, I, I still think that independent movies are con- are going to continue to reign at the awards, but uh, I, I think obviously people are going to pay to continue to see these big tentpole MCU blockbuster movies, and I think there is room enough for both of them, Cole. I think that's what we've learned here today. The 2010s at least gave us a lot of movies, so whatever your flavor is, you can go watch it 
at the cinema as soon as we are able to get back into sure theaters, that is. and you bring up a good point cole we've been watching a lot of movies and tv at home these days even more so than normal and it's just gonna keep going in that direction i'm predicting cole when we return we're gonna talk a little bit about streaming that's up next here on screen cleaning Welcome back to Screen Cleaning, the show that is all about shining a spotlight on all that is good in entertainment and helping you feel a little nostalgic. Yeah, we're shining all that's good in the entire decade of the 2010s. We're now a year removed from it. We're looking back and we're trying to determine what the stories were. What did we learn in those 10 years at the movies or on television? So Avery has already helped us think a little bit about what has dominated the 2010s at the movies with these independent films and also these franchises. But what else should we be considering in this conversation, Avery? Well, maybe I think next, you know, we've talked about, well, you guys have talked about different genres of movies. Um, I think next we could talk about something that really affected movies in the 2010s, and that is how we watch movies with the advent of streaming services. That completely changed the way we consumed all movies and TV. I started college in the year 2010. I was a freshman, and my Mm. roommate had Netflix. And what Netflix meant that year was he had DVDs of movies mailed to us at our dorm. What's a DVD? And then we watched them. (laughs) And then somehow, over the next 10 years, Netflix came to dominate our vernacular of how we even see movies or television. Oh, and this year, when you look at all the movies that have been nominated for awards... Like half of them come from Netflix. You can't show them on the big screen, and so Netflix buys them up and lets us watch them at home. And again, this is going to be an ongoing conversation because you have very passionate filmmakers who don't think that a movie is a movie unless you're enjoying it in a movie theater. Steve Spielberg and Chris (laughs) Nolan and all these guys that just – they craft their art so that you can hear it with a Dolby Dolby surround sound something or other that – it ends up – I don't even think their movies sound good anyway because Christopher Nolan's the man that gave us Tenant. And, and, come on, guys. And yet, you know, with a little bit of money and a little bit of persuasion, even people like Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese – Leonardo can... DiCaprio is going to be in a Netflix movie yeah, now. Right. Uh-huh. Absolutely. So, yeah, I'm right there with you, Cole. Netflix used to just be this mail-in service and now it's morphed into this thing that – It's kind of like the starter for the sourdough bread starter that I just started. (laughs) It's just becoming this monster that's getting out of control, kind of in a good way. But uh, also, you know, if you look at the the sheer volume of what they release, it's staggering, Cole. They they announced that they're doing over quality. Right. They're doing a movie every week this year. Every single week. And they've got some big names. Leonardo DiCaprio is one that you mentioned, right? Yeah, I mean, there's 52 weeks in a year, and so uh, five of them will probably be really good, and then 10 more will be watchable, and then, you know, 35 others are coming out. Yeah, but without (laughs) Netflix, 
We wouldn't have Amazon Prime. We wouldn't have Hulu. We wouldn't have Disney Plus. All these other streaming services that are competing with each other, trying to one-up one another, even sometimes with the release date. Oh, yeah, well, you're going to come out this date. Well, we're going to come out 10 days before you. Apple TV. Yeah, do a lower price. At the end of the decade, it was like in 2019, everyone was rushing to get their streaming service out there right at the end. I talked about the MCU uh, spawning a lot of imitators, and imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. It means they're making money and they're successful. Boy, Netflix really did get a lot of knockoffs and and people trying to do the Netflix thing to various. I mean, YouTube for a hot second during the 2010s decided they wanted to be a streaming service and then they just gave up on that and went more towards the YouTube TV as opposed to YouTube Premium or YouTube Red or right. whatever they called it several different times during the decade. It has been interesting to see which streaming services have come and gone. DC themselves try again. D- boy, this was the decade of DC failing apparently their dceu <laughs> couldn't match up to marvel and dc unlimited dc something or other i paid for it for a couple months but they had their own streaming service that did not take off so in 2017 73 percent of all u.s households subscribed to that also represents uh more than 50 percent of all u.s adults yeah, sounds right. I will say I've tried to cancel Netflix at least three times. It's always come back. It's like that sourdough starter. <laughs> you know? I've got sourdough bread on the mind. Excuse me. It looked really delicious when you showed me a picture. <laughs> Jeff is an accomplished sourdough bread maker. You're so, allowed to bring it up. Cole, do you still see streaming services as a threat? As a fan of somebody who likes the movie-going experience, you I like know. sitting down in that theater do you f- still see it as a threat? Oh, of course. Yeah, but it's just – it's more of the inevitable than it is like that it's worth trying to fight against, right? Now we've morphed our thoughts into how can these two things exist simultaneously? How can they coexist going into the future? And we didn't realize this was the world that we were going to – we didn't realize it was going to get fast-tracked the way that it did in 2020, right? So the decade ends in 2019 and yeah, streaming is big. And even on this program, we've had new streaming news, it seems like every single week. But then 2020 happens, theaters get shut down and the inevitable trajectory that it was going to just absolutely blasted off in that now we can only access movies. The, the general wide public can only get their movies on TV in their homes. And so what was coming eventually just happened immediately. And, you know, I was worried that I maybe shared some misinformation there for a second, but actually Hulu did premiere after Netflix. So Hulu came later, Cole. Um, it's interesting. And, be- and certainly Hulu originals, right? Netflix, sure. yeah, yeah, Netflix yeah. made their mark by trying to be their own production company and having their own stuff in addition to just letting you watch old episodes of Friends, right? Hulu started off that, like, you could tune in the next day for what you missed on TV the night before. And then it sort of morphed into a thing that's making its own original content. So Netflix, it's hard to believe that it's only been five years since Netflix came out with its first original movie. Do you know what it is, Cole? It was so it was it was super Oscar-y too that year. It, uh, Beasts of No Nation. That, that is was, correct. Yeah. Yes. And um, Okja, the so the fellow that did Parasite, uh-huh. uh, Bong Joon Ho, yeah. uh, did a Netflix movie before that that was supposed to get some uh, awards consideration, and it 
did not. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Maybe should have. I feel like at the beginning, these streaming services came out of the gate saying, let's just see how big of a movie we can get on our platform so people will want to tune in. But then they started to create their own content in-house, and they also started to acquire content from TV networks. Yeah, and I think this is our last, I think the last big trend that we identified of the 2010s. And uh, it goes from the bit, and it, we're going to travel for a minute from the big screen again to the small screen, and that's the advent of so-called prestige TV. Oh, prestige TV. I have a love – well, I have a bittersweet relationship with with prestige TV because I used to be able to watch shows like Burn Notice and binge Burn Notice like crazy, and you know I didn't know what I was missing on TV, and yet – when I discovered a show on Netflix, not on not when it originally aired on AMC, AMC. Uh, I fell in love with Breaking Bad. Yeah, Breaking Bad technically debuts on AMC in 2008, but it is certainly a story of the 2010s decade because you're not the only one. People fell in love with it when it came to Netflix, and they they realized it was coming later. And honestly, the the late, later seasons of Breaking Bad are better anyway. And so. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. And so here's how bad it was for me because uh, I discovered it on Netflix, even though I, I actually remember seeing the pilot on TV and thinking, oh, that's, that's kind of weird. Um, I caught up with it on Netflix and I binged through it so quickly that I actually – where the live TV episodes were airing and where I was on the Netflix show, they intersected. And I think I joined it around season five, which – uh, was also the last season of Breaking Bad. And what happened to Burn Notice after I started watching Breaking Bad is I tried to revisit that show and I couldn't do it. It seemed cheesy. It seemed too too run-of-the-mill. It just seemed like every other show that was on TV, right? So Breaking Bad is kind of the beginning of TV ruining other uh, – I don't want to say throwaway TV shows, but – Less uh, time commitment consumed TV shows, less, right? Less bingeable in yes. the in like the story arc kind of way. Less, yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. so another prime example is a show that premiered on FX, and this one is different in that I actually did watch it on FX, and I've watched every season of this show while it premiered on TV, and then I rewatched them on Hulu. Uh, the remake. Oh, not an alternate version of a Coen Brothers movie. This first season came out in 2014, and it is Fargo. They've had four seasons, and it's it's basically an anthology because even though there is a minor through line through each season, they all tell their own stories, and they do it in a very Coen-esque way. And again, you can just see the money on the screen with the casting and the production values. And you can see that we're starting to get some of this money on TV that wasn't available before. And you're not seeing, you know, whereas a burn notice type of a show, you can see on screen, okay, this is where you could tell they had to rush this scene and they only did one take because they were on such a tight schedule (laughs) that they, no matter what, they had to burn through that, if you will, right? (laughs) 
But uh, yeah, I'm much more of a fan of the slow burn of the take your time. Yeah, if you want to spend two or three years in between seasons to to beef up the writing and, and get the right people in place, I'm all for it if it's going to make for that much more of a rich viewing experience for me. Preferably don't have a little kid cast, though, if you're going to take your time, because those Stranger Kids, kid, Stranger Things kids are uh, starting to not look like kids anymore. See, but I... I would put Stranger Things somewhere between, you know, a network television show and prestige TV. I would but not consider it prestige it's TV. It's still trying to be awardsy. So I, when For Netflix sure. is yeah. dipping its toes over into prestige television, when we talk about prestige TV, it was invented by HBO in the last decade, but it got popularized in this decade, right? The Sopranos is what inspired the folks that made Breaking Bad and Mad Men and everyone that was making the good TV of this decade was inspired by The Wire and The Sopranos that was on HBO back in the last decade. It just didn't reach the cultural, like, integrated into everyone's conversation that we did this. only so many people had HBO back then. It took a Game of Thrones to get people to fork out that money to watch that prestige Yeah, they had exclusivity before, and it was cool that you were one of the couple of your friends that had seen The Wire, but then all of a sudden it got out to everyone, and that's how you, you know, make more money. Netflix realized that this is the direction that they want to go. And so they did like surveys and polls to see what would work. And they moneyballed their way into House of Cards, one of their their first like scripted drama. They they saw that people wanted Fincher and Kevin Spacey and political thrillers. And so that's exactly what they just kind of lumped together and gave us. And House of Cards started and, – and then they started forking over money for the four-year consideration campaigns so that it could get the prestige. Even if it wasn't so, – I mean like I'm a personal fan of it. But even if it wasn't great, they got it into the awards conversation so that it could be quote-unquote prestige and then we go from there. Cole, would you rather be thrilled for two hours or would you rather be captivated for two years? You know, both have their <laughs> merits, but I prefer movies over television. Really? And and David Fincher, who made one of the best movies of the whole decade, the first year of the decade with The Social Network, then turned his eyes to TV where he could tell – a 10-hour movie instead of just a two-hour movie because he's an executive producer on House of Cards and he is an executive producer on Mindhunter on Netflix. And so he, he ends up going into the TV direction. And, and I've missed out on Fincher movies that I wanted mm. to get last decade because he was busy making television instead. Well, even some of these big tent pole blockbuster type TV shows that, you know, they've been making lots of movies of. There have been so many Star Wars movies. I'm actually preferring their TV counterparts. You know, you think you take a look at this last saga, the Luke Skywalker saga, and they were so uneven and so divisive. And yet you go to the Mandalorian where it does look like, oh, they actually had a plan in place. You can see the money on the screen. The production value is through the roof. And full of really quirky characters, they pride themselves on the practical effects so that there is that little bit of nostalgia remembering those movies from the 70s and 80s. And so I'm I'm starting to prefer these TV counterparts of these big blockbuster movies that we've been so used to. But, uh, you know, for now, we're going to have to get used to streaming things because of the the state of things, as they say. I mean, this is what we always think, though. We're we're still nine years away from the end of this decade, and I'm sure that in 
2010 and 2011, it seemed like things were on an inevitable course, however the 2000s were going, right? And then things changed. Things always change. So we, we have a few years to figure out what this decade is really going to teach us and tell us about media. Well, when we come back, Cole, I'm really interested to hear what one of your favorite movies from the 2010s is, as well as a movie from the 2010s that you, up until now, just have not gotten around to watching. That's all up next as we take a look back at the 2010s here on Screen Cleaning. Were you leading them on for six weeks? No. Then why didn't you raise any of these concerns before? It's raining. I'm sorry? It just started raining. Mr. Zuckerberg, do I have your full attention? No. Do you think I deserve it? What? Do you think I deserve your full attention? I had to swear an oath before we began this deposition, and I don't want to perjure myself, so I have a legal obligation to say no. Okay, no. You don't think I deserve your attention? I think if your clients want to sit on my shoulders and call themselves tall, they have a right to give it a try, but there's no requirement that I enjoy sitting here listening to people lie. You have part of my attention. You have the minimum amount. The rest of my attention is back at the offices of Facebook, where my colleagues and I are doing things that no one in this room, including and especially your clients, are intellectually or creatively capable of doing. Did I adequately answer your condescending question? Gosh, I just love Aaron Sorkin's writing. You are listening to Screen Cleaning, where hopefully we have a little bit more of your attention than the Winklevosses and their lawyer were getting from Mark Zuckerberg and that clip from The Social Network. In my opinion, one of the best movies, maybe not quite my favorite, but one of the best of the 2010s decade. It came out right at the beginning of the decade, 2010, all downhill from there, I guess. Cole, I appreciate how you were walking while you were talking and saying that. Just you have as to. Aaron Sorkin would. Exactly. Right? Yeah. There were a couple other just brief trends that we don't remember from the 2010s because they just didn't last long enough. I want to throw out a couple honorable mentions, if you will, because in 2009, we really shaped what we ended up getting for the first part of the decade. Avatar comes out in 2009, breaks all kinds of box office records. And then for like five years, everything was 3D. They like ham-fisted it in where they, they tried to make it 3D. They tried to make it immersive 3D. It was going to be different this time. Uh, And then we gave up on that trend. And then also in 2009, we get Paranormal Activity, which said, hey, it's really cheap to make a found footage movie. So let's make a ton of found footage movies. You get End of Watch and Chronicle. It goes outside just the normal horror genre. Uh, Cloverfield comes out. Yep. So found footage, a brief little trend, not one that took over the whole decade, but it was it was there. It's worth mentioning in the 2010s. So, Cole, what would you say was your favorite movie from the 2010s? Oh, boy. So now I have to pick one. Yes, you do. And you mentioned Eighth Grade a couple times already. Ooh, yeah. And it it is from—so my, my favorite comedian of all time is Bo Burnham, and he had a couple great, like, Netflix specials, and he put one just on YouTube that are certainly my favorite moments, you know, just watching media in the decade. And then he directed a feature film about just a very simple story. And it was, it, it's one of the most emotional times I had in theater. Of course, like Endgame was honestly one of my favorite movies of the decade as well that ended the decade. <laughs> not but written if I think by of like Aaron Sorkin, right? True, I, I guess not, <laughs> you know, but 
Um, when I think of the the cinematic moments I had this year from a rookie director, Bo Burnham, Eighth Grade might be my favorite movie of the whole decade. If not, I'll throw out like Her, also amazing. Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, also amazing. I, I couldn't just say one. That's a good solid pick there, Cole. If I oh, – I don't know if I could just narrow it down to one. So here's what I'll do. I'll give you two – but from the same filmmaker. Is that fair? Yeah, that's all right. I think you probably even know what they are, Cole. I did guess that it would be Damien Chazelle directing both Whiplash and La La Land. Absolutely. I mean, this guy becomes the youngest Best Director winner of all time, came out with uh, Whiplash in 2014 and La La Land in 2016. Not an Academy Award winning Not a Best Picture winner, but neither one of them was. But here's the thing, Cole. I always love it, just like with Fargo and some of the Toy Story movies. I love this internal debate I have with myself over, gosh, do I like this movie better or do I like this one better? And sometimes I really can't decide if I like Whiplash or La La Land better. Toy Story, we got the third Toy Story right at the beginning of the 2010s. That's not, that's, uh, the, so we got one Toy Story. Oh, no, two was, I guess, in 99. We went a whole decade without a Toy Story, Jeff. That's oh, my weird. goodness. And then we got four in the, tw- in the 2019. Yeah. Uh, okay, as for me, I think my favorite film of the 2010s was the 2018 uh, film Burning. By mm-hmm. South, it's actually a foreign film. It was by, from the South Korean director uh, Lee Chang-dong. I the, by a mile, that was my favorite of the decade. This what is, is why we hired Avery, folks. He comes with <laughs> comes with the curveballs. Now, wait a minute. What is that movie about? Well, just the elevator pitch of the movie is that there's this floundering South Korean college graduate. He's just kind of working basically an Uber Eats kind of job. Um, when he meets, um, he meets up. He find, after after a long time, he finds he meets up again with this uh, young childhood friend of his, and through her, he meets this incredibly rich, handsome, young South Korean man. And eventually, you know, they all become friends and they hang out. And eventually, you know, this rich, handsome stranger reveals to our protagonist that he has the most unusual of hobbies, and that's burning down greenhouses. What? Yeah. Interesting. Audible pick. Well, now I know what the twist in that movie is. Thanks, Avery. We didn't. We we really didn't neglect foreign cinema. Foreign. I, I had a few foreign favorites from the horror genre this decade, with One Cut of the Dead and Train to Busan highlighting that for me. Now, for every favorite movie that we had in this decade, there were still a couple that slipped through the cracks. Jeff, you even started this podcast during this decade that has just passed, and we've been talking about movies for a good chunk of it. But there's still a few that are on the list that we just really want to scratch off. Movies that we, might you say, have been meaning to watch. Huh. Huh. I've I've been been meaning meaning to watch watch that. that. Cole, when you told me which film you chose from the 2010s that you've been meaning to watch, I was so excited because it means that we can finally talk about it. And I just assumed that you had seen it. It was a Best Picture winner. But you hadn't seen it. It's It was the only Best Picture winner in the entire decade I realized that I still haven't gotten around to seeing. It was 2011's nomination and victory, The Artist. Yes! I love this film because it is very much a love letter to movies of years past where, you know, silent movies reigned, right? And it was the option going to the movies to see a silent movie. And yet, uh, kind of like Singing in the Rain... There's this theme of how does an actor transition from being a silent movie actor 
to uh, starring in talkies. The chemistry between these two leads is amazing. But you watched it for the first time, so I'm super curious to hear what your thoughts are on the movie. I I think I had been told that it was it was a love letter. It was going to be black and white, and like it was talking about silent movies. I did not realize that they were going to commit to this. Yes. This actually is a silent movie, folks, that came out in 2011. There are two moments where there is some sound, like once almost exactly halfway through the movie and once right at the very end of the movie where where we get some some noise. But other than that, it is painted and scored like the musical composition of this exactly like a silent movie of the late 1920s as they transitioned over into the 30s and having talking on your movies and it was gosh it was so wonderful i was so happy watching it and and i thought that i had my list of like my favorite movies of the whole decade pretty much set in stone you know there's there's nothing that i missed out on you know i've i've been an adult for this whole decade i thought that i got it i have to squeeze the artist into my favorites of the whole decade because it really did scratch that itch that movie lovers have of of course this won the oscar because it's a love letter to movie like you said yes. if you're going to make a movie about the movies by the way david fincher's mank will absolutely win the academy award for best picture this year like there's just no really? doubt in my mind because it's david fincher and it's a movie about making movies that's what you need to just to pat the head of the academy voters and honestly, me too. Like, I, I count myself in that category of people that just loves movies. And I enjoy watching movies about movies, whether it's silent or about Citizen Kane or whatever it happens to be. You know, it's really interesting, Cole, because just as much as I loved what I was seeing on screen with the artist, I loved what I was hearing through the speakers. The music is such an instrumental part of, of my movie enjoyment here because – not only do you get borrowed pieces of soundtrack from other movies. So, for instance, in a very climactic scene, you get a part of the score from Vertigo by Bernard Herrmann. And you get one of my now favorite renditions of a song that I thought maybe Louis Prima had the best version of, Pennies from Heaven. A, a woman named Rose Murphy sings this cute little version of it. Panties from heaven. Yes, and it's probably my new favorite version of that song. And it just pairs so well with this charming film with these characters that you root for and you fall in love with and who ultimately are able to make that transition well enough to not only succeed in the business but also fall in love. So, yeah, when you talk about these two leads with great chemistry, you're talking about Jean Desjardins and Uggy the dog, of course. Mm, yes, that dog sure. is the star oh, of this dang goodness. movie. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Bernice Page, she's good too, but Ugly the it. Dog stole every scene he was in. So a movie that I've been meaning to watch uh, is from 2016. It was nominated for Best Picture among a bunch of other awards. And its lead actress did not win another Academy Award. <laughs> She'll win one of these days. She'll get the Consolation Award at oh. some point. Amy Adams, of course. Um, but the story of how I ended up with this movie is rather interesting. because Arrival. Arrival is the movie. Yes. It's interesting how I arrived at watching this yes. movie. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we had to take our car to get fixed, and we ended up with a rental car. Right? Is this in 2016 or is this this, this week? This is this year, okay, semi-recently. Cool. Gotcha. And um, 
we ended up with this big, luxurious minivan with all the the perks and everything. We were so excited. Little TV screen up here in the middle. Absolutely. Nice. And uh, we discovered in the dash, in the little DVD player, when we popped it out, there was the arrival that somebody had either owned at one point or had forgotten to take back to Redbox. Huh. And now we own Arrival on DVD. And we, that's how we watched it just the other night. Now, um, this is a film that, like I said, I had been looking forward to watching for some time, but for some reason just never got around to it. Um, it's about a linguist who is enlisted in the army to to discover how to communicate with extraterrestrial beings who may be there to establish peace or may be there for other reasons, and that's why she's brought in to figure that out. I will say this about the movie, Cole. It definitely earns its best sound editing Oscar that it won. Uh, the the sounds that they create for these aliens is really quite cool. I've got to tip my hat to that. Having said that, it kind of suffers some of the same problems that the movie Tenet does in that half the movie I kept turning to my wife and saying, what did they say? What was that? They spend the entirety of this movie in the dark, mumbling, or you're not able to hear anything. That I do they not remember say. that at all. Oh, I, I maybe love... that's the price of watching it at home. Maybe that's the downfall of watching. I it at did home. see this in the theater twice. There you go. Um, yeah, not only that. To me, I found it a bit confusing, and I thought the less I think about this whole non-linear timeline element that they've got in the movie, the better. So. I will say this, Cole. I'm not quite sure what the filmmakers wanted the takeaway to be, or maybe it was up for interpretation. So I don't know if that was, you know, the importance of communication or if you could – this hypothetical of if you could see into the future, would you still make the same choices? Or even maybe it's just a simple message of not aliens – not all aliens are bad. But I just kind of left the film scratching my head thinking – Huh. Well, that's a movie I'm probably not going to watch again. I'm so So sad to hear this. I fought the urge to introduce this movie by saying, so the movie I wanted to watch was the arrival. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed. Now, granted, we started this movie at like 9.30. You liked Ad Astra, didn't you? I loved Ad Astra. Oh, my gosh. People. <laughs> Big giant space movie and Ad Astra's the one he wasn't bored in and he couldn't stay awake in Arrival? Yeah. I watched Arrival four, twice in theaters, two more times since on home video. Um, my second favorite movie, the year that it came out. It came out the same year as 10 Cloverfield Lane, which mm. I think was both of our favorites. It's one of those rares that we, uh, Great we agree movie. on. Yeah. Right? Um, gosh, Arrival is so, so wonderful. Two years after Interstellar came out, right? Nolan loves his little time paradoxes. And mm-hmm. and, and Interstellar does that weird, like, time is a flat circle Amy jazz. Amy Adams is also in that movie, right? At the end. I think she is. Is who is it? Uh, who is um, Matthew McConaughey's daughter all grown up? That's it's, that's um, the character, right? No, it's Jessica Chastain. That's I Jessica think. Chastain. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's fact, Jessica, fact Jessica Chastain there we go. plays the grown daughter. Yeah. Um, and it's Anne Hathaway who plays the female lead. Oh. Right. Yeah. But, okay. But Amy Adams, first of all, that was where she real. this is, it's, it's at arrival where we arrived at the, why can't the Adam Academy understand the greatness of Amy Adams? Mm-hmm. Because this is the one where it's truly a snub. And now since then it's been justice for Amy Adams because that's the one where she really, 
gosh, her performance is amazing. The themes of the movie are great. And again, it does a similar thing as Interstellar, but so, so much better and so much more subtle. Like the the ending isn't just given to you on a plate that love is gravity or whatever it is in Interstellar. Like in <laughs> in in Arrival, it's more understanding of fate and piecing things together that we were seeing all the different timelines coming up to this. Such a complicated movie, such a wonderful movie. The heart knows what it wants, Cole, and my heart wants Ad Astra and maybe a slice of sourdough bread. <laughs> Big space movies, by the way, kind of a theme of the 2010s that we didn't we didn't get to talk about. Every single year, it seems like we got one, right? The Martian, Gravity, both were in that top box office. First Man kind of underperformed. Yeah. Ad Astra underperformed yeah. a little bit. So let's talk about some of the best of the news from the past week. And one of the things that we're going to try to do here on the show regularly is talk about some of the movies and shows that are dominating uh, at home over streaming, right? So, Avery, what do we have that's currently the tops at home? In lieu of a box office top five, Avery, <laughs> yes. what, what's the, the like, at home, streaming at home box, box office? office? Yeah, I think it's the VOD. Ooh, Video yeah. on demand charts, I think that's what they call it. But right, right now, we have a couple movies at the top of those charts. We have Christopher Nolan's Tenet, which is still, which is crazy because that came out in theaters in, back in September. Yes. And it's still rocking the on demand charts. I'm but, telling you, Nolan, even when he has what we would call a down movie, uh, we, we, I mentioned it whenever we talked about the box office in 2010, right? He's a franchise all to himself, and people want to see the Nolan movie. Yeah, he has he has name power like yep. like some actors do. Besides that, we also have the Gerard Butler disaster movie Greenland. Um, that's also very popular. The Tom Hanks <laughs> western News of the World. That was a good one. The, that was a good yeah. one. The Bo Burnham directed. Promising, promising young woman acted, acted. Bo Burnham acted. acted. Oh, I'm sorry. He's, you know, he's he a star. Not, yeah, he acted so, in it. And promising young woman got some uh, Golden Globes yes. recognition, and so that might be what uh, bumps it back up into it. <laughs> and then finally, also the new, uh, the Crudes, a new age. Saw that. Yeah. I enjoyed it more than I thought I would, which is not bad. I got to spend some time with my kids, eat some popcorn. Now, Cole. One of the movies that will probably come up in our discussion of the 90s is one of my favorite comedies of all time, Wayne's World. And I was so tickled when I read that they've got a new Super Bowl ad. And so I very promptly looked it up online and watched it. I'm closing my ears. La, 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 la. Because I hate, I hate that this year, all of a sudden, it must have something to do with streaming or COVID or something, that every single Super Bowl ad has been out on YouTube during the week, Super Bowl commercials are a sacred place for me, hmm. and I want to get them naturally while I'm watching the Super Bowl. I will be sitting in front of my TV watching the Super Bowl on Sunday, and I want to get those ads the way they were meant to be seen, in between touchdown passes and okay. while eating guacamole dip. Well, can I talk about how there's going to be a Frasier revival at Paramount Plus? Yes, Paramount Plus, folks, is the new CBS All Access because apparently to be a successful streaming service, you have to have a plus at the end of your name. <laughs> and apparently to get content onto your streaming service, you have to take a popular sitcom from the 90s and revive it as almost every streaming service has one of those in their back pocket. Well, as you know, with every show that we do here on Screen Cleaning, we have to end things by doing a little panning for good. There's good in them dire hills. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, we don't usually talk about departed ones from Hollywood because we like to focus on the positive. But one way that we can focus on the uh, celebrating the life of Christopher Plummer, who recently passed away, is by taking a look at some of our favorite films from Christopher Plummer's filmography. And I'm just going to – I'm happy – any day of the week to talk to anybody and everybody that would listen to me that is even with an earshot. I would shout it out on the hilltops how much I love How the much movie. the hills are alive with the sound of music. Hilltops. Got well, it. Well, that's one of them. Got it. it. So you love the sound of music, right? Yes. Starring Christopher Plummer. And yeah. Andrews. Mine would definitely be the film Up. And Which he's actually a villain in this movie. There you go. Voiceover work is cool because you don't always realize it, right? When you think of a Christopher Plummer role, it's The Sound of Music or more recently maybe Knives Out. But folks don't realize that he lent his voice to the, the – at first the one that uh, the guy in Up is looking up to and then realizing he is later the villain of the story. That could be a contender for one of my favorite movies from the 2000s, Cole. We'll have to see, because it came out in 2009, just after I got married. And so it holds, it will always hold a very special place in my heart, because especially during the first few minutes of that film, my wife and I kind of felt like we were watching maybe our future unfold onto the screen. Thankfully, we were able to have children, which I know is a very big struggle for a lot of people, but... Even aside from that, the soundtrack, the relationship that he has with this little boy, and then the great vocal performance by the late Christopher Plummer. Absolutely. So, Avery, other than The Sound of Music and Up, what is a movie that comes to your mind when you think of great Christopher Plummer films? When I think of Christopher Plummer, something I, – I hesitate to say movie because he's only in, an, in, a, in this one for about five, seven minutes at the very beginning. Tops. But I think of – the classic 2004 Disney adventure movie, National Treasure, starring <laughs> Nicolas Cage. You, I had forgotten that he was even in that, you guys. Oh <laughs> Christopher my goodness. Plummer is Nick Cage's grandpa at the very beginning that sets up the story of the Knights yeah, Templar the Knights that Templar. launches us on our journey. He has that little kind of mischievous twinkle in his eye oh. as he's telling his grandson this epic adventure on this rainy night it's it's perfect i'll have to go back and watch no. it christopher Plummer is such a long career with i mean dragnet he was he was in our media awareness for so long but when i think of him it's true it's it, it's the sound of music first but then it's his later roles you know all the money in the world when he jumped into that one and of and knives out that we've mentioned to old man christopher Plummer commanded something and and it's uh it's sad that we lost him this week well, Cole, I have had such a wonderful time reminiscing about the 2010s in movies and TV shows. And here's to another, hopefully, great decade for TV and movies. Yeah, the 2020s are going to be great. And I can't wait for in a month or two when we go back a little bit further and talk about the 2000s. Keep track of all of our screen cleaning podcasts wherever you get podcasts or listen to us every Saturday on BYU Radio, including next Saturday when we're going to talk about Valentine's Day. It's, it's Valentine's Day weekend. We want to give one more big thank you to our assistant producer, Avery Otzbach. Cole, as you said, we'll be back next week to give you the very best in entertainment here on Screen Cleaning. I'm Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wessinger. And we'll see you then. 